right, I am Dennis Mitch Bailey, and welcome to another edition of the Bradenton Times podcast. And I have a very special guest with me today who I've been trying to get into the studio for a while now. Longtime Manatee school board member and just overall good citizen. She's been involved in so many different charities and organizations. Of course, tons of work with Take Stock and Children. Uh, Karen Carpenter here with us today. Thank you, Karen. Uh, thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Well, let me say first that retirement has been good to you because, and I mean this very sincerely, you look younger than when you left the school. <laughs> well, that was easy. Do you feel younger? That's <laughs> the do. question. That was a very stressful job. So um, you're in you're in retirement now. The and third retirement. Third retirement. <laughs> yes. I think this is it. And you are getting to spend lots of time with your grandkids. So you're coming back and forth right now between right. Massachusetts and and, and... and they come down. Um, I'm still active in some local organizations. I'm on the board of Early Learning Coalition, which is a fabulous organization, well run. And then uh, the Manatee School for the Arts. I'm still in Kiwanis, and we do a lot of stuff for children. Uh, we just volunteered for a fishing tournament, which was really fun with with the kids, and then I, I do some work for the little cultural center out in Cortez, the Cortez uh, Cultural Center. This That's an old historic fishing village, and that's a really fun thing. So I'm if I'm looking good, it's because I'm enjoying my, my retirement. That's good. There's something <laughs> about that. You you have always been a shining example to me of, of citizen engagement, of somebody who, no matter what community you're in, you've taken part in it. And that's that's an important part. And maybe you can speak to that a little bit, where, where that kind of was instilled in you, where that came from, because it's something that I worry about in that it's not very commonly espoused by younger generations. You know, the idea, uh, and maybe it is that they, they have less things like Kiwanis and social clubs and different things in which you are encouraged and almost like kind of forced to engage members of your community where everything's kind of occurring virtually now and everything is just, you know, very insular and it's everybody's social media feed. Where did you get that sort of uh, uh, feeling of responsibility to, to be a participant in your community? Well, probably in the home. My mother was very active. <clears throat> she was a volunteer for uh, a Republican woman, congresswoman in Massachusetts, Edith Norse Rogers, she firmly believed that uh, women should vote and participate. So that became part of the, the drill that you get out in your community. Uh, and it was interesting because the early family discussions, my mother and father canceled, sometimes their votes would cancel each other out. Ah. <laughs> My mother, being a Republican, and my father was a union member. He worked for the railroad. And so the discussions were very intense about what was going on. And uh, they sometimes canceled each other's photos. Well, that's interesting that you say that because I've always saw, seen you as a very pragmatic, centrist. I don't know if centrist is the right word so much, but very independent thinking. And uh, one of the things that I've always was attracted to your policymaking was that I've always said if I have an ideology, it's pragmatism. I want to hear the merits of any side of anything. I don't need to view it through a filter of some sort of, well, I'm a Democrat or I'm a Republican, and that violates this, you know, trope of our, you know, code of honor or whatever. Uh, I just want things that work, and I, and I want to hear all the voices, and I think that rigorous debate between all sides and perspectives is usually what produces the best result. Uh, have you, 
have you noticed, and this is probably a self-answering question, that that's become a less common thing these days? It's horrible today. I mean, people are very polarized. Uh, they don't talk across the aisle. Uh, I mean, you know, my, my home where, that I grew up in, there was vigorous debate. You know, we never got to fisticuffs, but it was loud. <laughs> and it probably went deeper than just talking points, right? Right, right. And uh, but then there was a certain, there is a certain pragmatism. I agree with you. We want to know what's working, and because both parties, both the Democratic and the Republican Party, are so polarized, I think we're seeing a very unhealthy uh, time in our society and our democracy. We need to come together and. Listen to each other. I think that's really important. And then figure out a way forward. Um, I don't think the fringes uh, are should have their own way. And, and sometimes I, I push that back on the voter when they say they lament that themselves in that, you know, in any market, the suppliers answer demand. And there has been a, in my opinion, there's been a more concerted effort from, you know, those who are very partisan involved to punish members of either party when they do reach across the aisle. That somehow become like this, that, that that's some sort of betrayal if you work with the other party, but isn't that what governance is? Well, right. But, you know, it seems like there's, a, a, the, in the polarization, it's almost like the politics of hate. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you see what's going on in the Middle East. You see what's going on in the, uh, the election, and it's easier to to hate someone than it is to listen to them. And and I think it's, I personally think it's very unhealthy for all of us, for everybody in the society. And, you know, if you don't like what someone says, you take a gun out and shoot them, you know, and uh, that's that's the ultimate hate. You know, there, there was, I'm not a big John McCain fan, but he had a, a quote years ago that really stuck with me. And that it was actually a quote from one of his, uh, Steve Schmidt, who managed his presidential campaign. And it was when some P advisors had brought him the, it was the Reverend Wright issue with President Obama, and he did not want to have any ads with it. And he cautioned, and, and this may link back to, of course, there was that notorious uh, whisper campaign in South Carolina when he ran for the nomination in 2000 that the Bush team put out about him. His child. Yeah. His, child, his adopted yeah. child had, yeah. had been fathered out of wedlock, whatever the case was. <laughs> yeah. But it was something to the effect of there is a dark force in tribal, partisan, nativist politics, populism, dark populism, he called it, that may be tempting to unleash but he said, you can't control it once you do. And he said, I will not be part of anything that provokes that. And it seems like in the time since then, you know, and we've, we're only talking 13 years, it seems like it's been unleashed. And I think that was very, uh, very prophetic of him because it does not look like we could put that back in the jar. Yeah, no, it's a dangerous genie. And I love John McCain. I mean, he had the McCain-Feingold Campaign Finance Reform Act. I mean, he... Uh, he was a civilized, thoughtful human being. You didn't have to agree with him on everything, and we shouldn't always agree. I mean, that's like pablum. It's, it's, it's too tasteless, but it's good to have uh, controversy. But I think we're in a very dangerous time. There's a lack of uh, political discourse, uh, and if you don't agree with me, then you're dead. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk a little about, so you, you've spent obviously a great deal of time in your life committed to education, and you were a cl classroom teacher at one point, correct? Yes, yes, um, I was. Um, I, you know, I'm a product of public education. 
my pub, the public schools in Massachusetts. My children are the some pro- of the best in the country, by the way. Yes, and that's where early public education started yes. in the 1830s with Horace Mann. But because um, we didn't know what to do with kids before the Industrial sure. Revolution, you know, hey, what do we do with all these children? Do we have to put them in school somewhere? But um, I, I've been a classroom teacher. Um, I have been privileged to have a pretty decent education. I did my master's degree on the effect of school district size on teacher job satisfaction levels. Oh, very interesting. Yeah, and this was when I lived in California. It's like our teachers, which is the way you deliver education, they are the most important people in dealing with children. You know, that's who's guiding those minds to hopefully turn them on to something and, and to get them going in their lives. Uh, because their parents turned them over to the teachers. And um, I, I really, I had this hypothesis that uh, teachers in smaller school districts were, you know, they were going to be a lot happier because it would mm. be, they would be closer to the administrators and they would be, they would do better with the kids. Well, my, all my data that came in said, no, teachers in larger school districts, and this was done, what, 40 years ago when I was getting my master's, was um, teachers in larger school districts were happier in were happier in larger school districts. They just wanted to teach. They wanted to be left alone. They didn't want to be bothered with all, all the regulations and people hovering over them, but they wanted to be in the classroom with the kids. And that's the magic of learning, and that's the magic of teaching. Uh, that's what you want in education, where it's focused on teachers. And unfortunately, that hasn't happened. Well, let me ask you, that raises an interesting question. This is a point I've made in multiple columns and talked about on podcasts. I've, my experience as a parent, and of course I I had a child that, and I've taken some slack for the idea that my child did go to high school in the private school. Um, But he's a very bright child. I mean, he thrived in the private school. You know, the one size fits all of public education. You know, we have to look at charter schools and private schools and Different ways kids can learn. I, I don't think that one size. Yeah, and for, for me, works. it was you know he yeah. it was his choice. That was the other part was that by that point when he was a freshman, he had made the very deliberate decision that he wanted to go to a particular you know uh, private school. Uh, he went to St. Stephen's in West Bradenton. He got a scholarship to go there, and he uh, felt that that was. He was already a very competitive academic and felt like that gave him the best opportunity for college. And my my very blunt answer to people was, regardless of my feelings and support for public education, I would consider it a very selfish act to somehow then make his life require, you know, hemmed in by my philosophical political um Opinion. But he's your son, and definitely he has an inquiring mind, <laughs> and he's a great writer. <laughs> I appreciate that. You know, I mean, you have to look at that side. So he thrived in that yeah. environment, and that's what what you want. Not every child is that lucky. Very true, and you know. But the thing is, with with my experience with, and of course, you know, being an involved parent, and then being a journalist who covered the school board for years and years. Uh, when I first came here, and I, I, I was thrown by the idea that we do these large countywide school districts. I'd never seen anything like that because, of course, up north, it's usually one high school is a school district and it's feeder schools. So it's a smaller enterprise, less administration. And coming here, the, the, the sale pitch, if you will, and, and the explanation for it, I was told was, well, you know, the thinking is that when you have these larger institutions, 
you duplicate less resources and you know th those resources can then go farther that you're not doing you're not replicating you know transportation directors and you know uh food services and maintenance staffs and you know nurses and everything down the line you have everything under this one large county umbrella and that allows you then to have a level of administrative support at a better cost and then the other idea being that because you're drawing from a county tax base, you're not having a situation where, let's say, a high school like Southeast has a very limited tax base to draw from, and then maybe Lakewood Ranch High has a significantly higher one. That was that was a factor back north. You can go from one town to the next, and the school system suffered drastically because the property values weren't as high and so forth. My experience, however, while that makes sense, that you should, I think, be able to then, like any organization, if you can scale those support uh, uh, functions, you should be able to deliver higher efficiency. However, when you get into public organizations, the thing you have to always consider, it's not a competitive marketplace. So you're not really functioning the way a business would in which you are kind of held to account for those investments. My experience has been that I'm of the mindset that if we could do any one little thing, one just one policy change in Florida that would possibly, you know, improve public education. It would be to get rid of the countywide model. I think that big monolithic administration creates a tremendous amount of bureaucracy, and I think it drains a lot of the financial resources from getting to the classroom. I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on that. Well, I agreed with you initially about what you said about the countywide model being more efficient. Uh, because it's not like the little cities and towns, and that's where I grew up, the little cities and towns, and you have a rich town or a poor town, and it would depend on the uh, quality of that created the quality of education. In a countywide model, you, there should be equal educational resources allocated to a southeast or a bay shore as there are at a Lakewood ranch. I mean, that's not, the money allocation is not the only factor in terms of, of the educational resource. I think the value system is um, contrary to producing um, good education. We don't value teachers the way they should be valued, and we don't value them in paying them or uh, giving them opportunities to be with the children. And Let's talk about that second part more specifically, because the pay gets a lot of attention. But what are other ways in which we can improve the ways we value teachers, aside from pay? Well, pay is important. But sure, I, sure, absolutely. I, I, but I think that gets a I, lot of conversation where I think the other point that you made doesn't get nearly as much. Well, I, th I think that um, it, there's, there's the hackneyed saying, it takes a village to raise a child. And if you have a good community, you're probably going to have a good public school system sure. and good opportunities for kids and teachers. Um, I think valuing teachers with money is just one thing, but saying that they are that they putting them at the top of the organization chart. I mean, that we have a, Manatee has, and the other big counties, have a very uh, bureaucratic system that is hard to measure what the results are. And take a look at the school building. It's top heavy. Yes, it is a me living metaphor. <laughs> it is. It's, it's, it's almost like you couldn't, you couldn't make that up. No, it's fat at the top, and right. that's, that's what it is. And then, um, the way we valued we we don't value teachers is you take a great teacher, and what's the next step for the teacher? A good teacher? Oh, that teacher must be a principal. 
And then the teacher, the principal. Now, is that necessarily true, though? Well, no, it's not true. Okay. I, I mean, I've known great teachers who don't make terrible. They're very different skill sets, right? Very different skill sets. But there is a progression. And then the, then the uh, progression in, in a school system is you take a great principal and you put them downtown in charge of other schools. I've known a number of people t- who were appointed and, and promoted to go downtown who hated it. And they wanted to be back in the schools mm-hmm. where, t- where the kids were. Uh, and where the families were involved. I think that getting uh, a skillful teacher and a skillful principal will see that the community and families are involved. Because, as I said, you know, the old saying, it takes a village. If you don't have families involved, the kids are not going to do well. And the teachers will not feel the pressure um, to, uh, to help inspire the children. Uh, and then there's the wage levels mm-hmm. i mean Th- that's the part that i've heard a lot from teachers where it's like especially the very the best teachers the ones that come in with the most recruited with the most talent or the most success who tend then to be the most ambitious have lamented that well if i want to actually improve my financial situation i have to leave that part and move toward administration i don't necessarily right. want to do that but yeah, paying the administrators $150,000 mm-hmm. a year, which is what happens. And there's a big question about the qualifications of sure. s- some of those administrators. With no question. <laughs> yes. Um, is, is not the way to value the, the teachers. And the teachers represent, uh, and it's, it's very complex. It's not an easy uh, analysis to say, uh, to wave a magic wand and say, this is how you're going to fix it. But, you know, there's uh, all different moving parts, literally. The school buses, the cafeteria workers, uh, you know, all the stuff that goes on, building schools and great schools, they all are supposed to come around and help what's going on in the classroom. And the classroom is, I don't think, gets the attention that it, mm. it needs. Uh, you know, I've talked to teachers who say, I don't need that big fancy building. I could teach in a cave. I could teach out in the, in the meadow, especially if it's science or mm-hmm. uh, biology. And, and, you know, inspiring children to learn uh, and or not only just to learn, but to get a trade. I mean, you know, there are some great things going on in many of the Manatee County schools. Uh, they're not, those great things are not going on in those administrative buildings because they're not going on with children. Yeah. yeah. And that's a, you know, an analogy somebody made to me once a female teacher said, my husband works at a car dealership. And she said, the often you have salesmen who are phenomenal and they'd never go into management because they don't really have that skill set. There's a very different skill set from yep. between a salesman and a business manager. And she said, often the business manager is a not very good salesperson that demonstrated, or not very successful, I should say, that demonstrated some of the organizational skills that a lot of the those you know more kind of freewheeling, fly by the seat of their pants salespeople that thrive didn't have. And then an owner makes a decision and says, hey, you're not the best at this, but you have some of these skills that they all lack. So by putting you in this management position, we can have you sort of help and assist and support them in those areas to make sure this all gets done. You won't really make as much as a top salesperson. Uh, you'll make more than you're making as a unproductive salesperson yourself. Uh, and that might be a better fit for you. And she said, I look at a classroom being like that, where 
if you have somebody who thrives with the kids in the class, yep. they might be the last person you want to have running the school. But if the, if the financial incentive says, well, the only way you're ever going to be able to put your own kid through college or build that house, you know, with the, with the extra bedroom for the next kid is going there, well, they're going to make decisions for the family like anybody else does and maybe be miserable for it. And we're all, you know, less better off as a result. And she said, where I think you should have a scenario more like that car dealership where maybe someone who struggles in the classroom with, with the students maybe doesn't have the temperament for that role, but is passionate about education and has good skills functioning from a support thing might be better suited for that position, might be happier and thrive there, and you might not have to incentivize them with a 40% larger or double the pay of, of the teachers. Well, exactly. And then there needs to be, you know, with a big school district, there needs to be a role for different kinds of activities and roles. And where your with your car dealership analogy, the most important thing in the car dealership is the engineer who's producing that car. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, or who's designing it, right. and then the auto worker who's producing that car so it doesn't fall apart. And, you know, it goes back to the classroom is like, what are you doing with the children to help them uh, self-actualize and live better lives? And that's, uh, that's where it's all about. But, um, and the interesting thing is there are different models of education. Uh, I, I ran into a number of people that I made enemies of because I do support charter schools. Uh, and I do support, as long as they're locally controlled, and I do support different models of education, I don't think one size fits all with children. Mm. And unfortunately, we've got like the mass-produced way, you know, you take the kids. Assembly line, yeah. Assembly line, another brick in the wall. And you just put them through, mm. and they're supposed to come out at the end and, you know, you know, perfect little beings. But we need to look at the individualized uh, aspects of education. And so charter schools, private schools... Uh, different kinds of learning. You know, we've just come through, I hope we've come through this pandemic. I hope we're all right. <laughs> but um, we, there's probably going to be a huge learning gap, mm -hmm. particularly with uh, low income and, yes. and minorities who don't, didn't know how to navigate. Yes, who lost the most time because of the online resources the and were there not having a parent sometimes at home because they were frontline workers and people were. That's work right. Yeah. And not having access to the internet. Mm -hmm. So that is, um, I, I think we're going to have a lot of standardized tests that show some real learning. Yeah, loss. there's going to be a generational impact a yeah, of this. Yeah. And I mean, some children, uh, now my. I have two daughters and they have children and they're in a, a, a good state with good school systems and they have options. Mm -hmm. uh, the public school was closed up there. So, and they didn't want the online. So, you know, one of them enrolled her two sons in the local Catholic school, which was in person and they're not Catholic, but they, they were there and they didn't have that learning loss. Now those children will go back to the public school now that it's in person. So, they had that choice because they have the financial resources. Not everybody had that choice, yeah. and that those and that's that's based on income, uh, and that is uh, those children will be suffering. That's a, you know, I'll tell you the experience. We're, we're both members of the Qantas, and uh, I'm a big proponent of, and um, I've always been heavily involved with Every Child Is a Reader, 
And I was the guy who would always come and take every single one that was left, you know, because I, I had the ability <laughs> to be flexible. And I'd say, okay, well, whoever you don't have in VPK to read, give me the list. I'll go out and do it. And of course, that's a program where we go into VPK classrooms. Uh, we read to the uh, students. We talk to them about the importance of reading and being a writer. Obviously, I've got a vested interest in, in yeah, readers right. and it's uh, developing them. So it's always been really, really fun for me. But the first time I did it, on the same day, I had McNeil Elementary, which was, I believe, the number one or two highest from a socioeconomic uh, demographic in the district. And then number two, I had, same day, Manatee Elementary, which was, at the time, oh, yeah. one of the top two or three lowest Title socioeconomic. One. Title one yeah. school. Yeah. So you could not have had 25%. starker differences uh, to send to two schools yep. in one day. So I go into... Um, I go into, and another year I had Orange Ridge Bullock, another, another very low Title I school. So I go into McNeil and I read and I ask the question, you know, how many people, how many of you children know how to read at all? Every kid Every, raises exactly. hand. Exactly. See, there right? you go. That's, that's a function of the, the parents. Yes. So, well, so the next question was, status. how many of you have somebody that reads to you every day? Every hand goes up. How many have books at home? Yes. Every hand goes up. I go to Orange Ridge Bullock. I ask a question. One person, you know, says they can do some reading. Uh, I ask who has somebody that reads to him every day, and you know, one person says my uncle read a story once. Another one says my mom read me a book one time. Uh, yeah. When you look at that, so my question is: Is there anything then at that point you're you're thinking this is the story of who you get as a kindergarten teacher then? Exactly. And then, is there any way that the education system could ever hope? to catch kid B up to kid A by, by the time they graduate. Well, I'm an optimist. I think there's always hope. Okay. And, and you can have groups like Kiwanis where you volunteer mm -hmm. or church groups will come in and volunteer. Uh, this community is lucky because there's a lot of snowbirds in yes. the winter. And, you know, there's a lot of old people like me, old grandmothers who want to do something with little kids mm -hmm. because... You know, our kids are someplace else, or they're they're grown up. So tapping onto those resources um, is is one way you can catch up. Once a kid learns how to read, um, reading is going to open up the whole array of yeah. learning for him. And you know, there's all these statistics. If a child doesn't learn how to by third grade, he's going to wind up in the prison system, that sort of thing. Yeah. And so, but I think that um, it's it's critical and, and getting community resources involved, and they are out there. Uh, and not just because you're self, of your self-interest, because you want people to read because you are a writer, but... <laughs> no, I, I will tell you from my personal experience, uh, you know, obviously my son has had a tremendous amount of academic success, and a lot of people have asked me over the years, you know, hey, any tips... Uh, and the two things that I always say are, and this comes from the educational literature, is how quickly they learn to read and get up to a higher reading level. Right. And then how much math they're able to do in their head before they start going to paper yeah. are two of the biggest markers to future academic success. And what I saw from the reading in particular is it's like almost giving a little kid a superpower. And what I mean yeah. by that is, it's not just the reading. 
It's once they learn to read and start, yes, they just all of a sudden <laughs> see things. They start picking up things in adult conversations or off the news on television and off the screen and, and words and meanings. And it's almost like you're now ramping up and turbocharging every bit of their little learning minds yeah. on so many different fronts other than just reading books. Yeah, it's, it's so important. And that's where, you know, the home is. Uh, neither one of my parents went past the eighth grade in school. I, I mean, mm -hmm. they had to go to work. It was one of them was born in 1904 and one in 1907. So they it was uh, the pandemic then and the wars and everything. And so they didn't go to high school. And but they always emphasized with my brother and me that, you know, you need to you know, pay attention and learn how to read. And there were always books at home. They were always doing crossword puzzles. They were always arguing about politics, <laughs> the two of them. Isn't it fascinating how my grandfather only had an eighth grade education. And in our family, he was by far the person who was, was most educated in the terms of if you wanted to sit down and have policy conversations and stuff, he could tell you the most. He the read best two newspapers informed. a day. The best yeah. informed, yeah. And they knew how to read. Yes. And that was the whole thing. Yeah, he and, read two newspapers every day, yeah. watched local news, followed by the national news. Yes. And what do you think is the reason why that, like, like I compare that to, I have friends who are have much higher IQs and have master's degrees and PhDs that are not nearly as well informed about the world they live in as my grandfather was. What do you attribute that to? Why, why do you think that's kind of fallen off from your parents' generation to today? Oh, I don't know. I mean, that's a tough question. I, you know, the older I get, the more I realize. The I'm less very I disappointed know. with like, and again, I always have to remind myself that I work in media, so I'm exposed to information constantly, and a big part of my job is consuming information. So I can never like expect that the average person consumes nearly as much. But I'm always so disappointed when. People, you know, I'm in my 40s, people my age that are very educated and very intelligent in the field that they're in. And when then I think, oh, that's probably a really interesting person. I'd love to have a conversation with them. And then so many times when it's like, oh my God, you, you don't really know or have any interest in anything outside of what you do, except for the normal basic stuff like what's on Netflix and sports and, you know, the other things. There, there definitely seems to be something that was lost in, in two or three generations in terms of that well-rounded development. I was just going to say that. The well-rounded individual doesn't live, doesn't no. live anymore. <laughs> you know, yeah, th just... those are working class people, not to mention that, that your yeah. educated people back then were the ones having the hosting the dinner parties with the rigorous debates and the heavy involvement and everything. The intellectual yes. discussions, yeah. We, there is no intelligentsia anymore. Well, maybe it's that we have too much TV or maybe it's we have too much internet. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, there were a lot of calls on people's time I, that can pull people away and um, information has exploded. It's exponential. I mean, there's so much information out there and if people, somebody has an interesting job, that's great. You know, you can, uh, and, and they're dedicated to that, but they're not interesting to talk to. They're not good social discussion partners. Yeah. You know, and a lot of philosophers have kind of talked about the idea that we've gone increasingly away from, World War II, and then Vietnam, and then even through the Cold War, there was a lot more collectivism in our society. And we've moved into a incre an increasingly more entrenched age of individualism. Yeah, and isolation. I mean, people used to do more community things like going to church. And yeah. I can remember there was always the... Uh, 
the parades on Veterans Day mm-hmm. or Memorial Day. And the civics groups like we mentioned. Yeah. Look at how they, you know, again, if I go back to my grandfather, he had a member to the local, uh, the Eagles, the Elks, the, you know, exactly. uh, Kiwanis, you know, Rotary, all those things were like a, if you did business in town, you had to belong to all of them. That was the only way you interacted with people. And then that also then engaged you in their programs, which were always community-based. And then it forced you to like kind of see, hey, Joe over here has this group and they're doing this great thing, helping these people. And I'm going to get involved a little bit with that. And um, you you knew your community a lot more. And maybe that's been lost. Yeah, I I think it was potentially smaller, but it seems like we have lost a lot of, of... in community engagement. It's interesting, um, the Kiwanis Club that we are involved with is, is uh, was founded 100 years ago. Mm-hmm. So next year is the 100th anniversary, and they're going through the history. And all the stories of all the leaders, they were doing all this great stuff in Bradenton and Manatee County, and, and they wound up having a big uh, foundation that they give away a substantial amount of, amount of money for scholarship and mm-hmm. children's programs, um, the the cabins up at Camp Flying Eagle, the boys club, the girls scouts, that sort of thing, but and everybody was doing that. I, I mean, it it isn't uh, it, it it's it's a different lifestyle, and it's not a collective. Doesn't seem to be a collective value system. Anymore. And I, well, I think and I, you know, having a young child, the the thing that I would maybe tie that back to is the social media part of it, and that, that becoming so ubiquitous in our lives that. That's really an expression of self. Everything is my page, my thoughts. Uh, you know, this is who I am. And that sort of, I think, has more deeply entrenched us in that age of the individual. And I don't know that that's a good thing. I think that... that I don't think it is. These iPhones, these kids are on their iPhones. They're looking at TikTok. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I looked at some of those TikToks and I thought, oh, <laughs> that's, some of them are humorous, but... I, I mean, you could spend all day looking at TikTok and yeah. like, what's the point of that? You're not, you know, you're denying yourself uh, opportunities to be with your fellow human being. Yes. And that little iPhone, that little instrument has taken away a lot of our interactions. It's, it's, I was telling my son, it's sugar candy. There's no sustenance to it. It's not actual engagement. You're just, it's just the, 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 you know, a, a, thin, you know, veneer of what actual engagement is like. But that 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 is not engaging human beings. It's addictive. And I'm wondering what it's doing to the brains um, in in the eyes because mm-hmm. they're their little noses and my grandchildren all have them and their little noses, their parents make them put them away and limit their screen time. But that screen time, I don't think it's uh, it, I, I, I don't think it's good. Fortunately, you know, the kids get out with sports and they're doing things. But how many kids do Boy Scouts anymore? Mm-hmm. You know, and Girl Scouts and that sort of thing. I mean, there is not a lot you, of... You know, it's even, you know what was more striking to me? Th- this just kind of occurred to me in, in an interaction with my son. He, was, he used to be in this uh, really cool sports league called I-9. And what was nice about it was it was not super competitive by any means. They had these really strict rules of we're here to have fun. And you had a game every week. And no practices in between. You came an hour early, you practiced for an hour, you played a game, you went home. So it wasn't like, how do we fit this in, you know? And I coached for years and years. I really enjoyed it because I have a lot of problems with the way you sports are run and the seriousness and the bad parents. And this league, you know, stood for none of that. And 
it was a beautiful thing, but then he wanted to keep doing it. He did it even he did the flag football when he was like up to like 16, the oldest age you could do it. And then he wanted to do multiple seasons of it. And I was like, son, you're, you're really putting a lot on yourself in terms of all the things you have scheduled, these clubs and schools and everything. You know, are you sure you really want to take this on? Because you, you don't have any free time left. And then we had a conversation. The thing that occurred to me was, oh my God, this is the only way he could play with kids in a sport because they don't have pickup games. That doesn't exist anymore. Like I used to go to the park and we just, whatever was, Hey, you want to play kickball? No, we're going to play basketball. Okay. We're going to play touch football tomorrow. Like there was constantly this just like unscheduled, unplanned. We had no phones. You just showed up at a park and whoever was there played, whether you knew the kids or not. And that was the story of my childhood. And I loved it. And I realized that's an impossible thing for him to replicate. That literally does not exist. And this is the only way they can have some, these I-9 matches are his equivalent to a pickup game. They're a non-serious way where he can go and just play around with other kids his age, but you have to schedule that through a group now in order for it to be facilitated. Well, that's that's a different know, world. Yeah, and uh, you know, it used to be you had to schedule a play date with right. your kids. <laughs> it's like, go out and play. Yeah, Go out and play in the neighborhood. Go out and play in the woods. I mean, there's all sorts of things that you can do outside. And uh, I read a study that after 30 minutes, when kids are outside, they get bored. Well, they got to figure it out. Uh, and well, it's like anything else, right? If you if you give the option to not have any sort of discomfort in life, then people will take the path of least resistance. We got bored too, and then we said, "Hey, I'm bored. What are you going to do?" And somebody came up with a suggestion, and we took it. You yeah, know? <laughs> I know. You know, another thing I found very curious is uh, my son and and all the other children in my family seem to be fascinated by a lot of retro culture, especially in like TV shows and stuff. One in particular that I watched with him was uh, Stranger Things. I don't know if any of your grandkids got into that. Wonderful show on Netflix about kids growing up in the 80s. And um, he was talking about like how he wished he lived like during the time of these kids. And, and you know, they all became obsessed with this very popular show. And I started like probing a little bit what he liked about it. And then it occurred to me all at once, they don't have the phones. These kids yes. are riding their bikes and just showing up at each other's houses yeah. and going on these adventures. And there's all this air of mystery because there's not this giant massive distraction. Well, I, I think the phone is really an addiction. And I, I know I'm on my phone more than I should be, mm-hmm. you know. And, and uh, But, yeah, my grandchildren, they do a lot of sports. Uh, unfortunately, they do have phones, but they have limited screen time. And, uh, you know, there's the joy of learning and the joy of being outside and the joy of childhood. And I think some of us modern technology has taken it away from them. Yeah, I had, I had, I struggled with that because I was very, very strict. He had a flip phone for the longest time. (laughs) I did not want him having a smartphone. Uh, I was very deliberate in trying to avoid that. And then what I ran into was realizing he was having a very hard time at school and very sad because he said, without this, yeah. It's the peer pressure. I'm not included, though. Like, I'm not thought of. This is where you get an invite on yeah. Snapchat or whatever. This is where people set up what they're doing after school. If I'm not participating in that, I'm not there. My physical body's there, but I'm not present because nobody's saying, hey, this is what we're doing after school out loud. Yeah. And I started realizing, wow, I'm trying to preserve something that's important to me and that I... You're denying him. But I'm denying him, yes. Yeah. I'm not being realistic of the world he's going into. I'm going to send it. And I had a a conversation with this on his academic advisor with the Cook Foundation. 
And I, I, I said, help me, you know, you're younger, you're in your 20s. Am I hurting him more than I'm helping him? Am I not preparing him for the world he's going to go into, like it or not? And his answer was kind of, I don't know. It's, yeah. it's, it's so new. And that is new. I, I yeah. think it's great what you're doing, but at the same point, you might have a point. You might be harming him in some way as well. Well, and how did we set up our getting together? By text. I mean, that's, yes, you know, and, and it's instantaneous. And how do we look up anything? Always yeah. on the internet, yeah. Uh, yeah, and in a second, we'll have all the stuff that and we And you need. don't remember it, I find, nearly as well when you don't have to put any effort into it. <laughs> well, you don't go to the big encyclopedia. Right, right, right. <laughs> when there was the effort, I think your brain said, okay, put this in a file we can reach. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's pretty... <laughs> this uh, took work. We don't have to come down here again. Uh, yeah, I think that's pretty old-fashioned, but anyway... Yeah, and things have changed. I, I mean, I, my first teaching job, I taught Latin. Now, was that uh, interesting to children? Uh, were they really interested in that? I mean, I made it so that it was interesting, mm-hmm. you know, but I told them racy stories of the gods and goddesses. <laughs> <laughs> and I made my own children, uh, my own daughters, take a couple of years of Latin. They kicked and screamed, uh, but they appreciated it because it helped with their grammar and their SAT scores. But Now, speaking yeah. of which, I had the pleasure of meeting your lovely daughter, Kate, um, a few years back, and she works in education as well, correct? Yes, she does. What does she, she do? Just, well, she was um, a principal in a turnaround school in Boston. Mm-hmm. And then when the schools turned around and shut down, that was the end of what she was doing. And so she created a learning pod in her backyard in her house oh, wow. for 10 children um, three days a week. The kids were in school in that community two days a week. And so that three days a week... They uh, were at the house doing, and so she was doing the one-on-one learning with 10 kids. Oh, wow. How interesting. Yeah, it was very interesting. And I think, you know, she, she's really, that's that's where she, and she's been a principal of a charter school and done, um, done the administrative stuff. But the stuff that intrigues her is, is working with the children and their brains, you know, and, and getting them turned on because that's, it's, it's, that's the most important thing that we can do. That's the most important thing that we can do. So um, it's a big it's a big challenge. Um, now you've mentioned it, charter schools a couple times, and I'd like to pick your brain about that because that is a that, that that's a controversial subject in <laughs> education and politics. Uh, of course, there's there's many different kinds of charter schools. There are the uh, more you know uh, questionable for profit charters. We've yeah. seen some awful stories of some of the things that have happened. Anytime you kind of use the profit motivation in a public service, I, I don't think it has yielded great results. Uh, there are, however, some very great stories from nonprofit charters, community charters, district charters, stuff like that. Um, to me, one of the things that I see, particularly in Florida, is that it is perhaps the only available option to communities right now if they say this big monolithic district model that we're talking about isn't working, how do we take a school that is failing our community and sort of take it over? Uh, we've seen, you know, in, in some cases uh, this being done. What do you think, do you think that's a big future fight in Florida education? Uh, do you think as more communities, in fact, there was that one county that completely, you know, uh, took over the school district. Um, do you see this as being kind of a frontline battle right now? Yeah, I think conversion charters or charter conversions. Um, there's been, uh, there's a successful one, Rowlett. Yeah. Very, very, very successful. Um, there's a failed one, but he had a great idea uh, with Lincoln, Lincoln yeah. Memorial. 
Uh, well, I, well, be careful and failed. I, I would I would qualify that because beleaguered. Yeah. How, how about the word beleaguered? Or stolen. <laughs> <laughs> what well, depends on whose side you're on. But uh, it it was a, a great idea, and that particular school is one that has a, a terrific history in mm-hmm. Palmetto and the Black community uh, for decades. So it's painful. It was painful to see that that all happen. Um, I think charters provide an option, uh, and as as I said earlier, one size of, it, of learning for children does not fit all. Probably more so now than ever because of some of those reasons that we we're talking about. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I mean, you, you got to figure it out. We are seeing more learning disabilities. We're seeing more and more kids not being able to adapt to the historical model of education. And and certainly there's some online schools like Khan Academy. Mm-hmm. I, I, I mean, you, you, children can... Get, get I love him. Khan Academy. I think I, it's a great resource. It's, it's I use a, it myself a lot. It's a great model. And uh, so I think, and then there are specialized schools, whether it's for children with disabilities or schools that might want to focus on French or Chinese mm-hmm. uh, or, you know, that they can just focus on one subject, one culture, and it's immersion. And then we've got the well, I wouldn't call it a charter, but it's a private school. We got IMG. That's training mm-hmm. all these sports athletes for eighty grand a year. So, uh, and they those kids are in school uh, when they're not being trained as super athletes. So, uh, and I can't remember how many there are over there. Well, they're paying a lot of money to go to a very expensive private school with great sporting and much uh, less compensa- lesser compensated teachers. So, I'm not sure the quality of, of how that you know, transpire or how that, you know, comes across in that model. But um, in terms of public education, I, I, I'm i curious, do you think that when you talk about specializations of schools, do you think that's something that's going to become increasingly important in the kind of society that we live in? I think it should be in the array of, of options. Okay. I, I think we do need specialized. We might need math and science specialties, uh, you know, certain minimum uh, not minimum, but core learning before you go into the specialization. There might, because there, there might be an argument that the so-called Dewey education system is sort of outdated, and that the idea that our our public education uh, framework was built around an economy that doesn't exist anymore, and we may need to be visionary in terms of how we deliver it in the future. I, I think we do need to be visionary. I mean, and uh, it, it was built around an industrialized model, yeah. I, you know, and. That that isn't really, clerks and factory workers, right? Yeah, yeah. I I, I mean that that isn't uh, isn't the way uh, in in our twenty first or twenty second century society that's you know we're going to be uh, it's going to be needed. Uh, I I do think, and it's interesting what you said about your son and all the sports activities. I think that's an essential component. You know what is it? Uh, sound mind and a sound, sound body. body. Yeah. You know you need. You know, you need intellectual or mental stimulation, and you need uh, physical stimulation. You just can't sit there like a little disembodied brain Mm -hmm. in front of the computer. And um, there, you know, the pictures of the Martians who come down, is that what we're going to look like (laughs) in in the next century? Right. Because we're so reliant on the computer and we don't do anything physical. Uh, So, yeah, and then we're, what are we doing all those trips to space and the moon and colonizing. 
that's uh, kind of blowing a few people's minds. And yeah, I've always, I, I haven't been a big fan, to be frank with you, because I've always looked at it as sort of this escapist fantasy of we're not going to take care of this planet, but we're going to move on to another one. And, and trash that right? planet. <laughs> well, I mean, just the idea of it. It's like colonizing Mars. I've often said, um, you can colonize Antarctica a lot easier. Antarctica would be infinite, orders of magnitude more conducive to sustaining human life, and it would take so fewer of our resources to, to you know, create a, a biosphere there. Um, and we're not looking at doing that, so why are we so intent on trying to put one where then we'd have to try to, like, create some terranium that we could, you know, continuously support from far away? I, I, I don't like it. I, I think it's a waste. I think it's the male-dominant model of superiority. I wouldn't disagree with that. I wouldn't disagree with that. I would not disagree with that. You know, in the Arctic, you'd have to go under the ocean where the currents are and where right. they found some life. Well, hey, listen, I, uh, I've i been getting um, teased on my other podcast. Uh, in fact, we even have a button for it. Because I've been talking a lot about how we're getting this um, slow drip of UFO intel from the government. Since really probably traces back to a 2017 New York Times article but it, it's always been a, a verboten subject and it's just like, you know, for the tinfoil hat crowd. And now all of a sudden, you know, and I've always also been a person that said, yeah, they should keep it a secret because most people are dumb and reactionary. And if you give them information like that, who knows, you know, what, what would be the, the effect. But, I, you know, there's part of me that says that if you think maybe uh, you're not going to be able to keep it under wraps for much longer, maybe a slow drip to... <laughs> acclimate the, the monkeys to the reality might be the way to go. <laughs> it's like Area 51. We right? need to go out to Area 51 and see what's going on out there. Yeah, so there was that thing on 60 Minutes uh, last Sunday where, where they had Commander Faber who had that famous uh, interaction with with the so-called so tic-tac um, craft. But with everything else going on, I was like, oh, 2021, bring out the aliens now too. I guess that's about par for the course. Well, well I have a question that I frequently ask people, and I'm going to ask you this. If a spaceship landed in this room mm -hmm. and said, come, Dennis, would you like to tr take a trip with us? Would you go? Yeah. I would, too. Yeah. I would, too. Oh. And it's always interesting. I, some people are horrified at the question, oh, no, I wouldn't dare go. But then other people say, oh, yeah, well, I'd like to go on a spaceship. We're seekers. You know, if you're a seeker, there's no way around it. <laughs> if, if you're intellectually curious, what in the world would you, how would you ever say no to that? Right? I know. Let's go. Let's go experience, you know. And then, oh, what if they put, you know, people say, some of my friends will say, oh, what about the experiments that they're going to do on you? Well, I don't know why they would do that, but maybe if that's going to happen, Maybe it'll blow my mind a little right? bit. <laughs> you know, there's uh, there's another part of it. That I'm curious of your opinion uh, in education with the, you know, we talked about charter school model. But another thing that I've often wrestled with is I think that we need to, I think we have about a half century of creating a bias toward a certain kind of future for every student. And what I mean by that is uh, the trajectory, and I, and I really think neoliberalism had a lot to, to, to do with this, um, you know, you could trace it back to the 70s and sort of uh, neoliberal democratic policies of <sighs> aligned with free trade and aligned with globalization that basically we were going to acquiesce to the reality that we're going to lose our manufacturing base, we're going to lose a lot of the blue-collar jobs, but don't worry, we're going to transition and capture so many of these high-tech jobs. And the model for being successful was you have to go to college, you got to be a doctor, a lawyer, an engineer, a tech guy, and we really, really sort of 
you know, demonized the trades to a large degree, even as the trades became higher tech. And as a result, I've, I've come of the opinion that we do a disservice to so many students that are not a good candidate for a traditional college education, and they wind up in servitude to student debt and no degree in so many instances, when there are so many opportunities to learn a trade that might be a much better fit for who they are, and then that bias doesn't, doesn't acknowledge that, wow, if you saw how much some of those trades earned compared to the lower end of some of these professional areas where a lot of these people are going to end up if they even get to it, I, I think we do a disservice to kids in prioritizing and saying, well, you know, you're not nothing unless you're wearing a suit and driving a fancy car. I've always taken pains to tell my son, like, for example, one time, I remember this, he was probably like six, seven years old, and we had an associate who was a, an attorney that we ran into somewhere, and, uh, you know, he had a suit on, and he got into a fancy car, and my son said, he's a lawyer, look at him, he's probably really rich, huh, dad? And I said, he makes about 40 grand a year, son. <laughs> and he goes, well, is that a lot? I said, no. And uh, so that's, that's, that's pretty typical for a lawyer in Manatee County, outside of a handful of them. Um, I said, but... The truth is, and I said, never forget this. There's a guy somewhere that owns an auto body shop in town. There's a guy somewhere that owns a heating and AC place somewhere in town. There's a guy who owns a plumbing service somewhere in town, electric service somewhere in town, that can buy and sell him 10 times before the sun comes up tomorrow. And he's got a flannel shirt on and he's driving a truck. So don't let that be a judgment of how well-heeled you think someone is because you're going to be surprised a lot, especially in Manatee County where maybe less so in Sarasota, but especially in Manatee County, um, do you think we need to do a better job of sort of dispelling those, those myths about trades and really doing more to, to, to direct high school candidates towards paths of, of their greatest opportunity for success? Well, it's been more than a half a century. You know, I, I think uh, that uh, we have emphasized college and you're nothing if, unless you go to college and uh and and have a, a have a job that has a suit and a tie right. uh and but the trades and, and that's why manatee technical college is so important in this in this town uh, in this community uh i i think we have to be practical about what what it takes to run the society it isn't just people in suits and ties uh and who've gone to college and um there are a lot of people who've gone to college uh, who've made nothing of their life afterwards yeah <laughs> i mean it's like uh well i would say personally the the of all my cousins and we have a lot of very educated and successful people in different realms but by far the one who's been the most financially and professionally successful dropped out of high school in 10th grade and oh, to go work in the trades, and now he has an excavation empire in Delaware. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, there you go. I, I mean, it's it's what, high school was not a good fit for him. Well, see, if he had gone to a trade school, mm -hmm. it might have been a better fit right, for right. him. For him, and he learned along the way what it would take to run an excavation business, mm -hmm. which is about finance mm -hmm. and uh, you know geology and trucks. Mm -hmm. On the there's a uh, an index called the Lexile Index. Yes. Uh, and what all the people, whether it's, it's surgeons or airplane pilots or computer scientists, what's the highest Lexile index? What would you say is the highest on the Lexile index? I'm, I'm going to assume that I'm going to be very surprised. What's uh, the most complicated job? Think about it. 
It may be project management and construction because of all the different tentacles that you're... No, doing. it's a farmer. Ah, there you go. A for, farmer for has reasons. to deal yeah. with weather. Yep. He has to deal with genetics. He has mm-hmm. to deal with soil chemistry and physics. He and, and mechanics, all those that's machines. A, that's a really good point. It's, it's up on the 1500 in the yeah. uh, Lexile and, store. And it's, I remember, I remember so reading important. recently yeah. somebody, uh, that farmer that does the Joel, um, you know what I mean, Joel Salager. I think his name is, he does the uh, root to fruit farming. So what he basically is known for is he farms like they did a hundred years ago in crop rotation. And uh, it's fascinating. And, he was in genetics. Yeah. And it's, it's fascinating. And I remember hearing him in a long a interview. He's been several documentaries, but in a long form interview. I, I it, the, the interviewer eventually you know, remarked on what a remarkably intelligent person he is. And he made a comment to that. He said, people don't realize how much you have to know to farming. And he started talking about all the different It's, it's actually like higher that. on the Lexile scale than an airline pilot. It's I don't much doubt that. more yeah. complicated to be a don't farmer doubt that than an airline pilot. Mm-hmm. So, or a surgeon. I, I mean, you know, I mean, on your level of complexity, therefore the, the farmer is uh, really important in our society. So, and in Manatee County, look at all those farms, potatoes, tomatoes, they're all out there. And as our environment becomes more challenged, it is going to become not only a more crucial uh, uh, occupation, but then it's also going to become a more complex one. Right. But it's also an occupation that can drill down to individual uh, sustainability. Yes. Everybody can have... A chicken coop in their backyard to provide mm-hmm. the manure and the eggs and then to have, you know, little uh, organic vegetables mm-hmm. with them. And so, you know, it, there there can be ways that people can relate on a uh, small scale basis to farming, to farmers. Uh, so, yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. So asking a child to fit into this model of that you go to school, you learn algebra and grammar and science and history. What good is all of that if you're going to have an excavation company? Right. Let me ask you another question. Um, You have an interesting resume in that then you eventually left education. You went into the corporate world. You worked in banking. And, you know, so you have, by the time you came to serve in public office, you had what's become kind of fashionable to talk about now, business experience, um, in addition to having been in the classroom. So you, you had the perspective of the teachers you were creating policy for, but then you also did not just work in public sector uh, bureaucracy. So the idea that, that that's become so fashionable lately, that governments should run like corporations, what is someone who's actually had success in both of those areas and a great deal of experience, what is your thinking on that mentality? Are they as similar as some of those people like to say? Because what I've noticed is a lot of people who say it never really did much in the corporate world, so they don't really have that experience and they come into public office and make those kind of comments. Did you find those two to be closely related? Yeah, there's, there's analogies. When I was in banking, we were dealing with other people's money. <laughs> And in government, you were dealing with other people's money. Mm-hmm. And in the case of education, the County Board of Education, there's a sacred trust. You're dealing with other people's money for the benefit of other the children. children. Yeah. And I would say there's a lot of people who have forgotten that, uh, that it is other people's money. Uh, in banking, when the auditors marched into the bank, I can remember my boss 
every there was a hush in the bank because if there was something wrong in somebody's account, that person would never be seen again. Right. You know, because it was we were federally insured, mm-hmm. and we would lose our federal insurance if we didn't have clean audits. So. You know, trust is very important in banking. I think it's critical in government uh, that you, the, the your taxpayer can trust you to take care, steward the money, be stewards of the money, so that you know there's no finagling and it's it's efficiently run. In the private sector, it's much easier than in education or government. You know, what's the deliverable? Uh, I mean, in pri- in the private sector, and say a, uh, a a public company, there's a product that's delivered, and it's either good or bad. How do you are, are we really measuring the students as products, and they're mm-hmm. either good or bad? So it's much easier to have a quantifiable, accountable product in the private sector. And you could do things like you can just decide not to play in a certain sector. You can you not take sourced material from a certain vendor, where in public education, you get the kids that you get, you get you the get challenges the that you get, and yeah, you have to work right. with it. That's, that's right. It's, it's interesting. Along the way, and I don't know whether you knew this, but after I got through all of my domestic responsibilities, my kids got out of college and got their master's degrees, and my elderly parents had died, I always wanted to go to law school. So I went to law school, and uh, you know, I'm a perpetual learner. There's nothing mm-hmm. that new that I don't want to get involved in or learn about. So I did that, and that was fascinating. And so that gave me another um, arrow in my quiver to use as a weapon if I needed. I did um, not know you went to law school. Oh, yeah. I passed the bar and nice. at age 57. And, uh, and so it was fun. I loved it. I absolutely loved it. I loved being a student. I went to three days of law school. And then my <laughs> ex-wife and I decided we were getting divorced. We were, it was during rocky times. Yeah. And uh, it was very quickly decided that I needed to drop out so that we could not... <laughs> take that on it was still, by the third day i could still get the deposit back and not be on the hook for the loans yeah that was rocky and then i always think oh i think i'm gonna go do something in my my i'm 78 now in my 80s i'm gonna do some other if anybody school. could it would be you i would not surprise <laughs> if you told me you were gonna be the the first um uh senior in space it would not surprise no, no, me I, the space yeah. doesn't interest me you know i'm just i'm just saying that there's no challenge that you could tell me you were taking on that i would say get out <laughs> no. I would say that makes sense. I, I like this earth and I like fiddling and meddling with and trying to figure out if we can bring resources to make people's lives better, uh, whether they're children or teachers or people who live in the community. Um, we have a lot of challenges here, but we also have a lot of resources, a tremendous amount of resources. That's, that's a great recipe for, I think, this stage of life that people could look and take that. You are, I think, a model for someone who's lived a rich life and now in retirement is giving back to the community, feels that responsibility, but then also very clearly takes a tremendous amount of satisfaction and joy from the work that you do. So I think that's that's the best advertisement is I always see you happy and enjoying these things. I can tell they enrich your own life. And I think if more people understood what they would get out of it, they would be more involved. Well, you know, you would hope so, but people kind of, it's like opening a child's mind. Mm -hmm. It's like you have, and when you're older, your mind can open 
and uh, you don't have to be closed. Somebody was trying to teach me mahjong the other day, and so I think maybe I'll try that. I tried to learn to surf. Uh, Sullivan was teaching when we were in California a couple of years ago, and that is a tough thing to learn in your forties. <laughs> yeah. Well, also I did. I have two ukuleles now. So somebody, oh yeah, <laughs> someone. T- Am I going to see you out on the beach now that you're down on the Cortez side? <laughs> right. the ukulele playing some. <laughs> yeah, down by the sea. Calypso music. Seaside shifting sands. <laughs> Last question. You recently came back to Manatee County after being uh, gone in Massachusetts for a little bit. Um, what's your impression as you return? Better or worse? What, uh, what do we got to work on here? I think citizen participation would be the biggest thing. Um, and unfortunately, I want to say this delicately. I'm not delicate. I'll just say it. The um, Getting information is really critical about what's going on in government. And mm. the local papers because they've had so many, the print media has yeah. had so much cutback. Now, I'm, I'm out near the islands, and there's two weekly papers out there, mm-hmm. the Islander and the Sun. They do a great job co- covering local news. But um, I would say both the uh, one down south and the one here in town, they are struggling. They're struggling. They're asking for donations. They're obviously cut back. Uh, I think they're being printed on the east coast of Florida. Yeah, they consolidated. We just cut down the printing operations. Yeah, so we're not getting... And in the days that you talked about with your grandfather, Mm -hmm. there were two newspapers a day, morning and evening, in uh, in the towns or the cities. Um, If you're lucky, you get one newspaper. Yeah, and the unfortunate reality is really two things that are killing it. One of them is different means of of advertising that are unquestionably yeah. more effective have the broken the old model. The internet has broken the yeah. model. They can it's, reach people. Yep. Your, your Google ads and your different things where you can yeah. drill down and get a cheap ad in front of a person who is very likely to buy your product rather than blanketly splashing it across a lot of people who will never even see it on a page they don't turn to in the newspaper uh, has changed the model. And then the other part is the internet has also changed people's mindset as to what any sort of digital content is worth and and it and it's basically zero people say there's too much free on the internet for me to pay twelve dollars a month you want me to play the same for my local newspaper i play pay for netflix get out of here and if people aren't going to pay for it they're going to get what you can produce in a free product yeah and we're a free product and i always say like for example when Braden and Harold put a paywall on their digital product. And we had a lot of emails saying, that's baloney. We're only reading you from now on. People were shocked that I pushed back and said, I really am sorry you feel that way. Because the truth is, we're a small weekly product. We have two products a week, small, local, intensely focused on on local government. And we don't want to be the only news resource in this county. Our publisher, Joe, says all the time, we act as an effective supplement for a paper like the Herald, where we give you a different perspective on some, on just the things that are in our niche, we give you a different voice on it, which is important and, and hopefully keeps their coverage more honest. And for a long time, they kind of had the monopoly on the opinion for the county. And we're a good addition to that. But if that goes away and we're all you have, that free product isn't going to give you nearly as much. The aggregate amount of information coming out will not be nearly as great. And no community is, is well served by that. No, and you get group think. Yes. And you don't want that. Mm-hmm. You know, you grow by diversity of opinion, by talking to other people, looking at what's going on, checking out the facts and the rumors. And the other thing that becomes, this, this is the real danger of that, in my opinion. This is what I've noticed as a journalist more and more, is at the same time 
that news publications are shrinking. Government PIO offices are growing <laughs> and they have larger budgets than ever before. I know, a, I mean, just look at all of them. They're all staffed by ex-journalists. They're making twice as much working for a, a, a public sector as they ever did in a private. And that allows the institutions to control the narrative. They're putting out tons of press releases, high quality uh, digital photos, quotes are ready. Here's what happened. And these understaffed news organizations that don't have the resources to run the stories down end up taking them at their word for a lot of the narratives. And then the dissidents, the government watchdogs who are saying, hey, that's not true. They don't have that same ability. No, they don't have it. They don't have it. It's too bad. And, you know, what we, what we saw at Piney Point is a really good example because what was the source of all that crap? And it's still out there, phosphate mining. Yep. Uh, digging more holes, creating more gypsum stacks. And cetera. spending millions of dollars every year buying newspaper space. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> which which makes them, uh, some people say, well, that's the greenwash and make this seem, no, 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 no. no. It's, it's more cynical than that. That makes them a very important part of that newspaper's budget. And it makes them think twice before being critical of somebody with a six-figure ad account. Well, it's a lot of propaganda, but what do we value? We value, you know, lovely lawns so that the phosphate industry uh, fertilizer produces. So, yeah, so it's, uh, it's a complex issue, but I think the lack of uh, information and the lack of media is, uh, is really pretty tragic. Well, you are definitely a person, I'm one of your biggest fans, and you are a person that is, <laughs> I think, a model of being a good citizen and being an engaged citizen who puts their energies towards impacts in their community. And I think if we had more Karen Carpenters, Manatee County Thank would you. be a much better place. And if we had place. more Dennis Malley's writing <laughs> all the great stuff that you've written, I still want your book on Tulsa. <laughs> all right. Well, listen. Thank you very much. I appreciate you giving us our your time today. Okay, thank and you. And I just want to thank you one more time for all the service that you've given to our county. Okay, thanks.